When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm seeing something. It's smiling at me. But not a friendly smile. The worst smile I've ever seen in my life. Do you see it right now? Only in theaters September 30th. Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Padarone. This week we're talking to Colm O'Regan, stand-up comedian, best-selling author of three volumes of the book's Irish Mammies, which sprang from the Irish Mammies Twitter account, which has more than 160,000 followers, making it one of the top 40 accounts in Ireland. He runs a comedy night called In Jokes at the Patriot Inn and is a columnist with Examiner, The Examiner. So this week I was over in Birmingham. I was invited over as a special guest at a white collar boxing night. It was actually not in Birmingham, it was in Dudley. I met a fella there called Sean Smith, who was also a guest. Sean Smith, deck collector. Some people might know him from Vice Programme or TV station. I don't know, uh, but he's fairly well known. As a kind of a hard man, he gave me his card, actually, and it says, Sean Smith, debt collector. That is on his card. Safety starts with me. He's from Liverpool. And on the back of the card, it says, all aspects of security work undertaken, bodyguarding, close protection, surveillance, private investigating. What close protection is, I don't know. It's closer than bodyguarding. So the mind boggles. Anyway, I hung out with him for a bit and he started telling me that uh, he'd, 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 he'd telling me, he was saying, you know, I stabs people, I've shot people, I've been kidnapped. And he was uh, in prison for possession of a firearm. And there he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and being bipolar. And he's on a lot of medication. He told me all the medication, but I couldn't remember all the, the names, but there's quite a lot of it. He told me that uh, he had a couple of episodes where uh, he'd kind of lost it a bit and he couldn't remember what exactly had happened. Uh, One episode, he'd headbutted his own fridge and locked himself in a caravan. So I'm talking to this guy and he's a lovely fella and he's going, oh, we're going to get on really well. We're going to be mates and all this, you know. Sorry about the Liverpool accent there. And he's hanging out with him and his wife and he's after me telling me all this information and at one point we were standing alone downstairs. We went for a smoke together. So I'm standing with this big man who works out in the gym at least five days a week and we're having a smoke and we're in the basement of a white collar boxing arena and just you know you're standing there and just hoping that he doesn't have one of his episodes um because we're all alone here as uh, so that was interesting and a lovely fella and he invited me over to event an event that he is organizing he organizes bare knuckle boxing nights and he invited me over to one in nottingham so if that happens you know i'll interview him for this podcast and he was been followed around by a channel Four documentary crew as well so he could possibly be a huge star by next year um we got into this uh, white collar boxing hall there was a hall that was rented out and the ring is right in the middle and i sit down uh with um sean and his wife 
And she said to me, uh, I've talked to security and if it all kicks off, we head straight for that exit there and we're out in the car park. So that made me feel very nervous. But it was a lovely night and there was interesting fights. White collar boxing, I don't know if they were that white collar, these fellas. They looked like they could handle themselves in a ring and they didn't look like they worked in an office. One of the fights was kind of hilarious because one the boxer on my side was a big tall skinny fella and the opposite side was a local fella who's small slightly overweight and very tattooed and uh, it's just ridiculous because this tall guy is trying to swing at the small guy and just keeps going over his head and the small guy keeps getting in really close and doing that huggy thing that boxers do when they don't want to be hit and there was a lot of that going on but the huggy fella won in the end um, yesterday I was at the uh, oh and I have to rem- I've just forgotten now when I woke up the next day on Sunday morning in my hotel I heard this music that was like a drumming and instruments I didn't recognise and I looked out the window and there was a an Indian wedding party coming in and they were playing there was a band playing and the groom was on a white horse and all dressed up in in wedding. Uh, like Sikh uh, wedding outfits and the fellas some of them had pink turbans it was amazing it was really cool it's just so Birmingham is so multicultural and I loved it I had the best curry I've had in years as well in the Balti Palace so yesterday I was at the National Ploughing Competition in Leash to promote a film called The Wild Goose Lodge. And I was down there with the actors John Connors and Finbar Fury and Michael Collins and Dave Duffy. So look out for that film. It'll be coming coming out, I'd say, next year because it was set in 1816 and obviously it's 200th anniversary. And it's based on a true story that happened up around the uh, RD area. And on Thursday last, I was down in Wexford with Jack Lukeman to uh, do a little gig to promote the coming season of events in the Speaker Tent in Wexford. I'll be on in the Speaker Tent myself on the 15th of October along with Fred Cook and Carl Spain. If you're from Wexford or that area, please come along to that event. Thank you. Well, now, let's listen to Colin O'Regan. Thanks for coming in. Uh, I don't know when I did a gig with you before, but I know we did one in New York. That sounds better than somewhere else. (laughs) I I think what we'd say is that we've gigged together on both sides of the Atlantic. Yeah, 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 yes, that's right. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, That was you had a great gig there in in in, what was it? The underground. It was the underground. The village underground. The village underground. Yeah, I had been. I'd I'd done a couple of gigs in America on various trips Mm. and. Uh, that that's the gig I use to say, yeah, I've I've played a few New York clubs, uh, you know, as opposed to sure the Irish had me over and uh, uh, yeah, the yeah. cousin got me in, and uh, even though it was St Patrick's Day and there was an mm. Irish theme to it, but it was a proper New York audience, I thought. So it, I it figure was. if they could understand what I was saying and they still laughed, then I've done a New York club. So I was quite happy with it actually. It was great. Um, that and there was a uh, a drummer and a keyboard player they were amazing they were bringing the axe on and off that's right yeah and but, you but, that night you must have had great fun was that the first time you've ever interacted musically with a uh, what, what, what would you call it like on on you know in the good old days of uh, I say uh, comedy de- def com- what do you, comedy def jam what do you call it def comedy jam yeah you know the thing on MTV the def jam thing yeah the def jam thing where they would have like a hype man 
You can no. cut out the bit where I get the name wrong several times. No, uh, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. <laughs> but you know that bit where you like it's 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 normally you're used to being brought on and the applause the audience has misjudged the amount of time you get to, to get, like, to, the to, get to the stage <laughs> and it's not necessarily their fault. It's just that just at the moment you were announced, this like really tall guy got up and they thought it was him. <laughs> So they kind of shot their applause load on the on a guy who was just getting up to go to the toilet, and then, and then you appear from behind them, and it's like I'm, they're like, "I'm sorry, I can't. We can't re-applaud for you." So yeah. So the notion of being brought on to perfectly timed music that quit immediately as soon as you reach the mic was amazing. Uh, yeah, an unusual experience. But they were great at jamming. So I, when I picked up and started doing a few songs, they joined in. They were amazing. Yeah, and it, I mean, I, I'm curious about that as a musician as well. I'm not a musician, but mm. asking you, uh, is there a moment where you both realise what beat you're on? You know, almost like when you're when you're riffing with somebody who's funny and there's a moment where the to and fro is just perfect. Oh, you, um, you get to the rhythm. Is there something about I think when as musicians, Colm, they were way ahead of me, way ahead of me. I didn't have to worry about anything. Whatever beat I was on, they were on it. Yes. <laughs> it's like playing five aside and there's one really good player who makes you look good by passing you the ball in the easiest way possible. Exactly, yeah. Oh, it was great. Um, and that is the club. Isn't that part of the club anyway that Louis C.K. is seen going into on his show no it it looked familiar i mean i, it, I think it's the the comedy cafe as he goes into it, but comedy underground are the same part of the same thing and yeah. it, that's uh, that's my story yes and i'm sticking to it and but also <laughs> it has a it has a brilliant like it's i think you know even even with a cartoon version of what stand up comedy should be to be down in the west village mm. going into a basement comedy mm. club where, you know, you don't know, it's not apparent from the outside and then you go in and the place is full and there's somebody already laughing that is a comedian on stage. It's 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 how you would represent comedy if you only had two seconds to do it in a scene set or in a movie, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. And were you over there doing, uh, were you doing a gig or were you promoting your book or both? Possibly? I had, uh, that time, that was uh, this lovely mixture of gigs. I went uh, first of all, to the Irish Art Centre. I should say books, books. not book. Yeah. Uh, they're all, they all run into one another anyway. <laughs> the, I, I, each one of the Irish family's books ends on a cliffhanger. It's, uh, it's unputdownable. <laughs> <laughs> Very Moorish. And we went, I went over there. Uh, I, 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 I was just me, but I've started saying we now to imply that there's an entourage of <laughs> production oh, yeah. team. I, uh, I, I think that... Uh, there's a moment where, like you say, the we thing. Well, yeah, well, we've had a good year. Um, that means you've that got a PR person. and a, a Exactly. Assistant. Me and the postman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. uh, went over around, the, went over twice in New York this year mm. uh, or mm. to America this year. Uh, first time around March, went to the, did the gig in the Irish Arts Centre mm. in their little hundred seater. But now they're getting a big new swanky building I don't know whether it's ready or not it might be ready for 2016 mm-hmm. and so I did a gig there and then It'll I went out 199 seater 199 yeah so mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. we'll just we'll put reserved seat stickers on the back 20 rows and just do the front play to the front <laughs> but uh, after that I went to Kansas City and uh, had three gigs there one was uh, for the Kansas City Irish Centre mm. then I did Kansas City Public Library and that was a book thing because the great thing about having a book, it doesn't make you a better person. It just makes it easier to get a gig in a library. <laughs> it's like it's mm. like a, it's like a driver's license 
doesn't make you a better driver the day you pass your test. It's just that it's just accepted as some sort of proof that you should yeah. be in the car. So uh, <laughs> so I did. I essentially did a gig in the library, but I called it a book thing. Mm-hmm. It also means you could probably get uh, grants from uh, Culture Ireland. Oh, yeah. There's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> there, I don't know. Um, do you get grant? Is there such a thing? Does a grant no, happen with comedy? I think there's no, no, no. It's actually not in. I, I had a thing. I was invited to do a, a festival in India for student festival in India, uh, but they were relying on Culture Ireland to pay for the flights. So they applied, thinking this will be no problem, yeah. and we'll see you in India. But it was turned down because it actually is in law. Well, it like it's not in law that you can't give money to a comedian, but it's not included in the arts. Yeah. And uh, it's, therefore they can't. It's bittersweet. I mean, not being mm. included in the arts gives us our inherent edginess that you mm. and I both share, Joe, and the fringes <laughs> of, uh, of, of of the arts world. Mm. Uh, but also if we were, yeah, if we were accepted into the fold, would it make us comfortable? Uh, although it would be handy to get that grant money. No, I'd, I'd prefer the grant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, think, I think they don't want to give us the grant because maybe they see uh, comedians essentially as students. And they know what happens when you give students the grant. They'll just drink it all in October. <laughs> <laughs> so they don't, they don't trust us. They, 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 there isn't really a gig in India, is there? You're just getting over on, a, on the lash. <laughs> yeah, it says here on this on this letter from uh, Dutch Gold Incorporated that <laughs> this gig is in India Town, India. <laughs> I know. But listen, you, uh, I've done uh, loads of research in the last hour and um, I, you know, so you come from a town called Dripsy. That's right. Which is also a disease. I it think. is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in Cork. No, the Dropsy is a oh, disease. The Dropsy, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah Dripsy yeah, is, a, yeah, yeah. is the, uh, in order to prevent yourself from getting the Dropsy, you would get vaccinated with the Dripsy. It's, <laughs> it's a, yeah. a more a benign form of the, uh, the Dropsy you would get a dripsy. You would get a dripsy. Bag. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, wh- what did your parents do? Uh, small farmers. Oh and yeah, what kind uh, of farm? Little uh, dairy farm dairy, yeah. on the edge of a river valley. Very picturesque. Mm-hmm. Uh, places are picturesque until you're eight and then they're boring until you're 30 and then they're picturesque again. You wonder why you ever left. And uh, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's, no, it's lovely, a lovely little area on the edge of the river dripsy. And we had a, we, we had a small farm with a river running through it, mm. which is nice. And uh, my father uh, was one of the, I suppose, the you know, the kind of, you, you don't want to lionize this kind of breed of man too much, but the, the old style farmer who could do everything, or at least would try to do everything. Like there was no, there was no such thing as specialization. If the wiring need fixed, he'd fix it. Doesn't mean he did a great job. He just did it because mm. that was, uh, or, you know, the mechanic builder, um, electrician and farmer, you know, all that kind of thing. Whereas I have trouble changing the the toner on a printer like uh, mm. so uh, yeah, I was a classic small farmer and, and my mother would have was a teacher before uh, she got married. Now, I, I think she could have kept on at the teaching. But back then, generally, uh, women who got married left the job. Uh, because it was obviously incompatible with what they were supposed to be doing, <laughs> according to the constant, <laughs> according to De Valera and uh, Archbishop yeah. John McQuaid. Uh, mm. So, uh, yeah, a very it was quite a um, I, I, you wouldn't say idyllic, but when you look back on it, you, you kind of remember uh, the notion of going out and say in a summer's day in the summer mm. holidays, like leaving the house to go out, just pottering around mm. the place, and then being gone for. 
a few hours and then coming back in for meals, you know, which I don't know mm. whether uh, children get to do that now. Uh, no. like um, I, yeah, I mean, I grew up on a dairy farm as well. Really? In Meath, yeah, yeah. Well, that was a bigger farm, I'd say. Uh, it was. My yeah. my father moved from Galway, so yeah. he had a little uh, sheep farm in Galway. And then there was a thing called the Land Commission. Moved farmers, I think throughout the 50s and 60s, to uh, bigger farms in the uh, east, in Meath, Kildare area. So, yeah. like, our neighbours were from Kerry as well. Yeah, and where did they get the land uh, yeah. from? From estates. It was Somerville oh. Estate. Uh, was, it was... I don't know, it was just taken off the yeah. <laughs> and they were sent back to England yeah. or they bought it off and then he split a, it up. Minister Seamus Mugabe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Who's still well respected <laughs> among the uh, small farming community. Yeah, that's, uh, I, that, that's a bit of history that you kind of forget. So, I mean, it might have been a, it might have been an estate that maybe not that many descendants and they were going to, it was going to probably go to the state anyway, was it? Is it one of those ascendancy farms that... Yeah, maybe. That, I'm not sure because... Um, a lot of uh, a lot of farmers came from Galway and uh, from Kerry, Mayo, and I don't know where all the land. I know there was we had some friends from Galway, but not friends. Some friends of my parents had moved up, and they got a big house. Yeah. yeah, they got like not just a bit of land, but they got like the house that would have been the estate house. Yeah. But they were just a normal family, and they were in this massive house that had dumb waiters and stuff, and they only lived in the basement of it, really. And a few, of the, one or two of the bedrooms. But That's the, extraordinary. And uh, I'm just thinking all these families coming here from the West looking at the big trees. Like you must have, like, or the lack of stone walls. Like it must have been uh, yeah, a, a landscape that was quite alien to them, you know. Yeah, and there was a lot of wood, I know, on the uh, farm that we got because it was probably used not so much for, for farming as just for leisure and hunting and that kind of, you know what those those crowded them, yes. them peckers, Downton yes. Abbey yeah, types. Yeah. No wonder they had no wonder they had time to plant trees when we were working the land for them. You know, uh, that's yeah, that's yeah. that's extraordinary. And our our area was, uh, it's, I mean, you'd love to, you'd love to go back and trace back, particularly as a farmer son. I'd love to mm. know the history of the farm, not a hundred years ago, but you know, two hundred years ago, or who had it. Like, mm. for example, our farm, the the footprint of our farm, I think would have supported maybe seven farmers and this is just 42 acres and it would have been seven houses on it seven whatever you'd like to call them sharecroppers yeah. or whatever maybe 60 or 100 years ago so uh, we've one field that's 14 acres my father buried all the ditches and uh Exactly where the ditches were. Like he, he didn't, he didn't kidnap the ditches. Take the ditches and bury them somewhere <laughs> in, else. In, in the dead of night and bring them up to the mountains. And the, the ditches were never um, heard of it's again. Very hard to to uh, dig the water out of a ditch. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, but he made seven fields into one. And you know there would have been three, three little farms. I think on that footprint. And uh, our house. It was funny. Our house was owned by a. Um, a couple and it would have been known as a rambling house that people would call in just stop by and have a drop of whiskey and chat not necessarily you know telling stories like uh, the next thing the devil went up over the mountain it wasn't that kind of thing it was just a house where obviously they were you know the, the kind of Irish tradition of visiting would oh, have yeah. been very much oh, in yeah, effect because that, that's what we used to do uh, because uh, you'd know another family from Galway living in Meath and we'd, we'll, we'll visit them visit them yeah, yeah. we'd call in <laughs> but uh, so th- it was this rambling house but 
uh, when my parents came, they had no interest in visitors, but the old visitors kept coming for a few years until eventually they were just like <laughs> cold shouldered out of it. Like they, they got a very civil welcome. But, you know, my parents didn't really have wouldn't have had the time for that kind of talking shite. <laughs> That would have gone on in a lot of rambling house situations. So um, I, 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 I just I kind of I love to think of the kind of, you know, the kind of old lads you don't see around the country anymore. Fellas with kind of shaky heads, like wandering around and kind of eyes with a sort of a film over them. The, you yeah. know, them kind of fellas, you know, fellas who who would have tuned, cho- uh uh, chewed tobacco unironically. That's my father. <laughs> <laughs> and still wore a tie. I'd worn a tie picking spuds. Amazing, like, yeah. yeah. That is my father. He'd yeah. be wearing a suit out milking the cows. Yeah, because I suppose a... that was what you'd wear. I mean, the, the tie would keep the front, at least that bit of the shirt clean. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, yeah. but the tie would was an easy way of closing the top button anyway. For, yeah, yeah. Uh, for fellas. But uh, yeah, I just I, I picture them arriving in the first few years after, first few months after 1965, mm. not realising that the house was under new management. You know, because we always think of a business being under new management, but it must it must mm. happen a lot with houses, mm. not so much anymore. But the kind of when a house passes from one style of owner mm. to another, mm. you know, like the swallows arriving and realizing that the barn has been knocked. You know, it's that kind of oh, thing. It's weird. I was actually renting a house in a place called Black Pits. It's down. Uh, it's near the centre of Dublin, anyway. Yeah, Black Pits. Uh, it's in you know, the it's uh, liber- near the Liberties. Yeah, the Tenters and all that around there. The Tenters pub. It's very, pub, yeah. it's very. It's off Clanbrassel Street. Yes, isn't it? off Clanbrassel Street. Yeah. And uh, there was a, a terrace. Uh, it was four red brick houses in a row. So I was renting one with Paul Tylock actually, and and my girlfriend at the time. And uh, was knocking the door one day, and they were like, "Here, or uh, after coming from a funeral, our mas died. We used to live here in the house. You mind we come in and have a look around?" And they came in. And they were like. <laughs> Going from room to go, I remember, remember you. Like, you used to live in, you used to have the cot there in the corner, and they were crying and everything. This was this went on for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like, you're just standing there wondering, uh, like, were you kind of thinking that it was a uh, scam at the start? Were you, were you watching them? Or were you watching and, uh, them? They were very upset, so yeah. I did think that they did live there, but yeah. Jesus Christ, they were almost living there again you know yeah. <laughs> were, were you starting to, to feel self-conscious about the uh, about the fact that your possessions had so little meaning <laughs> compared to what they were looking for like your, there with your guitar and your comedy notebook kind of standing where yeah. Ma used to stand and my accent I was well, about, yeah. yes well um, as you see we've painted <laughs> <laughs> it's quite bijou <laughs> <laughs> No, but yeah, that's the kind of thing that yeah, people come re- used to come round to your house. And did you did you do a lot of work on the farm? Did you? I did when it was required. It's small farms, like they, it soon becomes apparent on a small farm that it's not big enough to support mm. a family. And we always were kind of bookish. My father was very bookish. He w- he only went to school up to the age of twelve, but he spent a lot of his spare time in the library. In Bandon, you know, he was a real reader, mad about local history and oh, the yeah. meanings of place names and that kind of thing. So and it was a house full of newspapers and books lying around the place. So it wasn't that was where the where it was headed. And then with a small farm, you don't have the kind of I'd say around the 70s or 80s, tens of thousands of small farmers realized this. Look, this isn't going to go like the educate free education coming in was an option that there would be a few years before they'd all emigrate. So uh, it would. uh, So we were generally we did whenever a job required more than one 
uh, man we were helping out but a lot of the time he would have Did found you have to stand in gaps so that oh lots of standing in gaps yeah. <laughs> so that a cow wouldn't run through it the uh, <laughs> or bringing cattle from well I mean so we have we had we had with two roads running through through the farm so mm. you say there's a field a road a group of fields with the house on it mm. and then another road and then the river field so there was an off like we knew the easiest one was the one where the gate the two gates are opposite mm. and to take an aegis to let the cattle out in that one like you know you you like it wouldn't you wouldn't be able to show your face around the family at all if you were part of a situation where cattle going across a road broke out yeah that, you know yeah but there were a few kind of uh, missions that were that were fairly serious like if we were bringing if the cows had broken out into an area called Mary's Bog, which was like, basically, it was our Vietnam. <laughs> it, was this, it was this swamp, this forested swamp that, uh, like, you would be like, it would be like a Vietnam War movie because you'd be going through the undergrowth trying to find cattle. Like, and then they yeah. kind of burst out of a bush, like, and then you'd have to try and hunt them in the vague. You'd have the river on one side. You'd be, uh, as a seven-year-old, of course, the water would have gone into your wellies and you'd mm. be crying and useless. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so the cows would, uh, cows slash cattle would, uh, they would, see, they were only interested in acting the bollocks as far as we could see. The like, cows were? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they were yeah. just, particularly in the summer, uh, they were running away from flies or whatever. And we would, uh, we would have to try and predict what they do. So like the, mm. the specialist, uh, like it was a moment of great pride for me the first time as a child where I ran up through the herd like high risk herding is where you put them all onto the road on the assumption that you'd be able to run up ahead of them to block the gap that's ahead yeah rather because let's say you, you would wouldn't only go mass- ahead from the beginning no. if you didn't if there was too many gaps you'd only be able to fill oh, the gaps yeah, yeah, as they yeah. went like yeah, it was yeah, like yeah, yeah. it was a bit like in uh, you know in Wallace and Gromit where they're putting down the tracks ahead of the train <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. Fa- just, yeah just as long as they can keep laying track ahead of the train they're okay so you uh, get them past a gap then run through then them run for through, the next gap run through them for the next gap so I remember I think I might have mm. been 10 the first mm. time I ran through the herd to mm. get to the next gap. That was a quite a rite of passage because obviously as time goes on, I was the youngest and elder brothers might be away, you know, say in working or in mm. college or whatever. So there was less people to help. So mm. you got more, uh, you got promotions uh, in, in, in herding. But yeah, lots of, uh, lots of standing in gaps and gateways. And then the worst situation, of course, if the cattle broke up towards the, the village and they went into somebody's lawn and ate roses or that was, yeah, yeah because... Because, like, you'd be going into these uh, houses of people who weren't farmers and therefore didn't habitually have shit on yeah, their trousers. Yeah. Whereas for us, the notion that you might have a bit of dung on your trousers was just something you might have at work, you know. Yeah. But uh, so it felt like you were it felt like you were walking across the lawn of uh, an, a New Orleans <laughs> You know, slave owners' plantation yeah, house. Yeah, and compare, and you were walking across in your in your trousers, not metaphorically tied up at Baylor Twine. Uh, so, um, <laughs> yes, happy days. But right passage was getting through the whole through herd, the herd yeah. up to the next gap. And then the the, the the hardest job in herding was anything to do with the cattle being inside in the shed and being put out into the crush. Did you have a crush? Uh, yeah, very we, narrow kind of a channel yeah, no, for yeah, dosing cattle or yeah, dehorning yeah, we them. Did, we, did, we did have a crush. Yeah. Uh, I think it was a movable crush. Mm. Oh, okay, swanky. Uh, well, I just, just it just occurs place. to me that that if somebody said like, "What was your first crush?" Well, I remember uh, we were dehorning <laughs> them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, have oh, you did, ever have did, you ever been present when cattle were dehorned? Well, I did. Covered in blood. 
the, yes, I was there uh, when because when I remember actually uh, uh, feeding the cows when they had the horns and going between the cows with uh, hay or turnips as well. These yeah. turnips uh, with the two um, horns sticking out and then they all had to go and they were cut off and twine tied around That's the right. bit. And then if that came loose, a big jet of blood That's right, yeah. would come right out of the. That's the only time horn. I've ever seen in real life blood. Spurting in Tarantino yeah. style is is the dehorning of cattle. It's uh, mm. stays with you. But going into the into the big cattle house to mm. hunt them out that's a kind of a heroic thing because basically you're alone inside in a large shed with cattle who are all kind of just. I mean, they don't mean to knock you over, but you know. <laughs> uh, but this is where they're being milked now. No, this is where they're being. This is where oh, they're being put into the crush. For, the, yeah, uh, the sh- the crush is the uh, holding pen. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my big rite of passage. Uh, I was uh, my father got me up at about two in the morning. Uh, it was a difficult uh, calving going on. This cow wasn't the calf wasn't coming out. Yeah, he he got me up and uh, so we tied a rope to the 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 head and two front legs were out, and we tied a rope to maybe one of the legs or something. We were trying yeah. to get this calf out and it wasn't happening. Yeah. It just wasn't happening. So it was so bad. He went off to get a neighbour at two or three in the morning. And I was left there just holding the rope. Fred going back in. I, uh, in case you went <laughs> yeah. back in. Because then he could suffocate, right? Of course, yeah, yeah. Because so, at that stage he's breathing, yeah. But I just kind of started gently pulling and yeah. uh, and got the calf out on my own. Yeah. Is that because you, d- you didn't pull it too hard? You didn't do kind of... Gen- I think that might have been it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're meant to wait for her yeah. um, to push with you, aren't you? So. Are you... Uh, were you staring into the calf's eyes? Like, was there a moment of both of you looking at each other, realising... Both of you would play an important role in each other's lives. It was a bit of the. It was just heroic. Uh, he went off and got a neighbour. The neighbour must have been pissed off because he got yeah. a neighbour up at two, at three in the morning, and the neighbour arrives and yeah. the calf is there born. That's amazing. Um, yeah, that was brilliant. And what did you do with the calf? Ate it. <laughs> <laughs> I licked it and licked all the stuff yeah. off it for the cow. <laughs> no, I don't know what happened. Uh, the calf, I'm sure it'd be, it'd be if it was a girl calf, it had a better chance of living. But uh, yeah, we had a, um, we had a we had a cow that fell off a cliff and no. was sitting on its sitting like a human, you know, like sitting on its arse in a way that cows shouldn't sit. And it was still alive, but it obviously broken its back. So uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, had to be put down. But then we ate it, and uh, it was did you? It was really nice, yeah. Because mm-hmm. if you you had an animal, you'd you'd slaughter it, and we had a huge freezer. And we didn't mm. slaughter it ourselves. We got it slaughtered. But the butcher mm. would make a year's meat out of it. Like, yeah. can you imagine now having a year, like you'd have maybe for the week or the Christmas, mm. but having a year's meat. Mm. In st- like, that's the kind of thing that if I knew a neighbor had a year's meat, I might consider raiding the neighbor <laughs> for their food supply yeah. during a post-apocalyptic situation. And is that the only we did that once and it wasn't a cow that jumped off a cliff it was just a normal cow we decided <laughs> to kill it and and get the butcher in and, and he did the whole thing No no it wasn't uh, it wasn't solely uh, base mm. jumping uh, <laughs> cow, <laughs> cow, cow, surfing or cliff jumping cows that we had yeah, it was uh, any generally underperforming ones I think would have been eaten in a given right. year yeah yeah, um, yeah, and uh, my and uh, the one thing about gap uh, filling in my see my grand my father's father was killed by a bull really yeah and uh, so there was a big fear of bulls yeah my mother was particularly yeah we didn't have a bull we, we did have have for a we shared a bull with a neighbour yeah and that is scary because we you've got to, so a cow goes in heat you you 
you bring the cow to the bull and then you've got to separate the bull from yeah, the, cow yeah. and the cow. The bull doesn't want that. He's, yeah, yeah, he's going, yeah. I want more of this. And that's that's very dangerous. How do you separate the bull? Well, you, with a stick. <laughs> <laughs> Three people with a stick going, get back, get back. Like, like a and Christian uh, brother at a disco, is it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like, well, before, can we move on from the? We reminisced enough there about farming. I, I'm always amazed when I've interviewed people who are all younger. You're a good bit younger than me, and we end up talking about stuff that sounds like it should have been not happening anymore in Ireland. Like you're talking, we're talking about stuff that's. I know. Uh, you know. Well, yeah. It's. Uh, I think there's a. There's a. Well, there's, we're in the middle of a nostalgia boom. Anyway, mm, I mm. think uh, particularly if you're aged between thirty and fifty, like eighty percent of all media is a list of things you remember from your childhood. Mm. You know, like I saw. No, they're not even trying anymore. I know. I'm part partly responsible with the Irish Mammy's books and all that. But <laughs> <laughs> so it would be charged uh, for me to complain too much. But sometimes you see like people are not even trying when it comes to the nostalgia thing. <laughs> like I saw something the other day, 11 things that were forbidden in an Irish household. And it's like, oh, here we go, letting the heat out, putting on the immersion. It's like Des Bishop did the immersion yeah. 15 years ago. Yeah. And, I'm, and people haven't moved on since. I deliberately left it out of my books because it's done. Yeah. You know I, mean? <laughs> I, I, I talked about the hot press, which is slightly different. Oh, the know? hot press. Yeah. yeah. There was lots of, I remember just that's where it was loads. Because I have like four elder sisters and there was just uh, loads of knickers and bras in that press. And yeah. You could be, if you, because you had to pull, I'd pull my own underpants out and they, if they were at the bottom, yeah, I could disturb a whole, you know, a whole avalanche. And God forbid there should be any kind of shel- shelves in there. <laughs> They're just all stuffed in there. Yeah. I were reminiscing it. So, how many brothers and sisters have you got? Three elder brothers. Oh, uh, yeah. no sisters. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I. Uh, it's kind of my poor mother has four sons, uh, but she. We were. I think you kind of uh, as having no sisters. I don't know whether it makes you good or bad at understanding women. It certainly mm. makes you think all the time that you don't know anything which is always a good place to start I think mm. and uh, did you then head straight off to college or did you I did yeah mm. I played it very much by the book I uh, went to secondary school in Cork mm. City and mm. so I was the only country kid in a class full of Harold Chaws so that was mm. good a good comedy education not so much for impressing them by being funny but actually saying nothing and listening mm. I think any comedian needs an extended period. Well, I think it's good for you to have an extended period of just observing people watching. Yeah. And mm. and and have it to have it enforced, like to have it in such a way that you're not doing it for expediency sake that you wonder you're going to use it. But that, you know, if you if you uh, if you said something, then somebody would say, yeah, call him, come back to us when you've got some pubes like, you know, that <laughs> so, <laughs> so particularly a country kid in the city school where the put downs are just so good because. Uh, you're a country fella, you know, the city kids mm. are just more uh, streetwise. They're just smarter with humour because you, you growing up amongst other people, you have less time to get your, your spake in. I think and it has to count. Yeah, because you, you're a country lad, you can spend hours just walking around fields. Exactly. <laughs> you yeah. don't whereas, have to be sharp. constantly <laughs> sparring. Like, whereas, like, you know, in Dublin or in Cork, like, you don't even need to know what people are saying. It's just, you the hell with it. And these are all comments that are just like, boom, 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 boom. Yeah. Whereas in the country, it's like, eh, that's that's more like, like you, I'd say, you know, <laughs> it's just slower. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I think it was a good part of the 
the education and also exposure to an accent that's different than different yeah. to yours. And uh, what did you study? Well, in, uh, in university then I did civil engineering oh, right, for four yeah. years and uh, I liked it. Oh, sorry, you were talking about school there. Yeah, so that was secondary oh, school. Sorry, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Yeah. So six mm. years in secondary school in mm, uh, mm, mm. in Cork City, and then mm. four years in civil engineering. Right. And, and uh, uh, when then did you think I'm going to do something to do with comedy or performing or anything like that? I had always done. Uh, I'd never done comedy before. I did even in primary school. Did you ever do the local community centre? Uh, like uh, as a, as a child to do a drama and you know to do a little play in the local community centre this yeah, year. I've really done that. No, no. It, they they were great. Uh, we <laughs> my, myself, my best friend Daniel, uh, we got through to the final of whatever it was we were doing. Then we decided we'd rewrite the play, uh, which was very much ripped off of Faulty Towers. Like essentially, it was it might even have been called Faulty Towers, and <laughs> characters <laughs> might actually have been Basil and. Civil, but then to, to we threw in Margaret and Dennis Thatcher as being two guests. Like this, yeah. this is 1989, and uh, and so we wrote the play. And then we, I had my first ever creative falling out with another person when <laughs> when we wrote the play. But his mother didn't like it, so he said, "We're not going to do it that way." And I said, "Well, I don't care what your mother thinks. We're going to do it that way anyway." And uh, yeah, we lost in the final. So, but uh, we mm. done little that little play did. Uh, uh, debates where you just give a little speech at the local community centre about something, mm. and uh, and then in in later years the the local dramatic society I did a couple of things with them Oklahoma I was in Oklahoma I played ah. one of the lads in that and famously uh, in a in the bidding scene in Oklahoma so if you're not familiar with Oklahoma they're raising money to uh, one of the one of the uh, story points in it is they're raising money to uh, build a new barn mm. so they're auctioning hampers mm. and uh, obviously in, an, in a play or any kind of drama the key thing to an auction is that everybody remembers to bid right <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I bid and then the fellow after me forgot his lines so there was silence so in the end I outbid myself <laughs> That's class. Uh, did you do that dance uh, the farmer and the cowboy should be friends I did yeah mm, did that dance comes in the yeah, absolutely, and for reasons best known to uh, our producer at the time, the six lads who were doing the dancing, um, mm. we were dressed in uh, jeans and braces and were covered in baby oil. Apparently, it was some sort of dream sequence that we were. I don't think it was in the original musical, um, even though we we're sixteen. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure uh, it's illegal to do that. Was kind of there thing. A Christian Welder involved in it? The no, there wasn't. Uh, mm. It was. Uh, I mean, as a sixteen-year-old fellow, he said, "Well, look, if this is what it takes." Uh, to, to attract the attention of the female members of the cast and horse it into me, like, you know. <laughs> but uh, but I didn't do anything uh, dramatically wise. I was in college radio for a mm. few years, mm. and uh, it's so funny. Like you do a breakfast show on college radio, but you don't care about the listeners. You know, like in order to do good radio, you have it has to be for the listeners. But I, I remember I played. Uh, and now at uh, 10 past eight in a moment, the weather. But first, here's Joy Division. And it wasn't even Joy Division, Love will tear us apart. It was one of the more, it yeah, was like. Yeah. Uh, She's uh, lost control. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Something> <laughs> like that. And, and I made sure to tell him that it was on vinyl as well, too. And, <laughs> and the best ever, because uh, college radio in uh, UCC, it's a really good radio station, but it had to be a certain amount of speech. So you had to do interviews. You couldn't just do music. Hmm. And as a student radio station, you're always really searching around for interesting ideas. 
or indeed any idea for an interviewee. And uh, I remember it was Che Guevara. It was the anniversary of Che Guevara's death. So I said I'd, I thought I'd bring in, you know, you'd always know who the socialist worker fellas were in college mm. because they're actually probably still attending college now. And uh, <laughs> uh, so I, I got in one of them to talk about uh, Che Guevara. And as a breakfast show, a breakfast show item. <laughs> so, so the, the feature ended with, uh, well, of course, uh, he was. I think he was an English guy. He was saying, um, well, you know, Che Guevara. He's just one. Uh, he's just one fighter in the never-ending struggle against the military-industrial complex. That is a struggle that goes on to this day, and we will never stop fighting. And then I said, "Thanks very much for that. Now let's take a track." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I didn't do comedy until years later. Yeah, so yeah. Y- I went to work in worked, uh, oh, yeah. in computers for one of those ten years. Yeah, comedians that worked. It worked, and uh, <laughs> yeah, about halfway yeah. through my halfway mm. through my career, uh, I I had always um, I was some hungover Sunday where mm. I was just saying I really should do something different. You know, so, you know, you get the kind of booze blues, mm. and uh, I was feeling a bit down. So I said, right, I've been talking about this for a while now. Why don't I just Google open mic? Dublin and just book myself in and not tell anyone so that was in I was about 26 or 27 at that 27 and uh, I found the Haypenny Bridge Inn and uh, rang Tony Ferns mm. and uh, he gave me a gig in a, in a month's time so then I had an appointment that yeah. I had to keep so there was no there was no ducking out of it at that stage you know because I had worked for so many years that I knew that once you make an appointment or meeting you should turn up so uh <laughs> That was the first gig. And do you remember any of the material you were doing? or? I think I have a printout of it somewhere. Yeah. And uh, it, it's funny looking at it now. I don't remember the details of it, but what's interesting is that because I'd never done it before, you could see the bits where I wrote where I, I had expected the audience to just laugh at the at the very notion of it yeah without any structure or the rhythm of a of a gag like that they would just go like it was almost like I had watched stand up not live because I don't think I'd ever been to live stand up before then mm-hmm. but watched stand up on a television where a character goes and does stand up says something and gets a laugh because that, mm. that's what the material looks like when I look at it now um, I'm trying to remember the details no it was and was it a were you shitting it like you must have been um, I had uh, because I hadn't told anyone there was mm. a real uh, shot to nothing element about yeah. it that it was a secret that I could that so uh, so it's probably a bit cliche to say it never felt more alive uh, but there was that sense of this is genuinely a unique experience like yeah. this is not like a normal day at the office or this is not somebody else's story you know when you're when you go through college and school and work you do feel that you're following a pattern uh, to a certain extent and that's fine you know but sometimes at any given moment it doesn't have to be a long term thing that you would do something that's uniquely your own mm. thing like you feel it like on your wedding day or you know uh, at some stage maybe when a child is born that, that this is uniquely you mm. like not so much that what you're saying is, is so completely a unique viewpoint but that this experience like everybody's gone fucking paragliding do you know what I mean like it's that kind of um, yeah yeah um, even though lots of people have done stand-up, but because less statistically not a whole lot of people have done stand-up, you do feel, just for that moment, a little bit rare, you know, and yeah. it's a good... I think that it's was also very personal what you, how you do your own stand-up. Exactly, like, yeah, and as that, it's an incredible mm-hmm. moment. Um, like, I, previously I had stood up in front of audiences um, 
not as doing stand up, but maybe given it done a debate, you know, done debating yeah. in school. And but there was nothing like that in the Hapney Bridge. Jane, it's not a big place, but there's a bit where you you're walking and you're facing the stage, you're walking and you face the stage and suddenly you turn around. And it's a bit where you turn around. Like they talk about what's it like standing up. It's not the standing up, it's the turning around. Like it's the <laughs> bit where you're no longer facing the yeah. stage and then you're facing the audience. And and there's a moment where it's this is real and they're actually here to see you or they're now look, listening to you. Mm. Uh, and so you're not, this is not, this is not an article about doing stand up. This is doing stand up. And that was, that's probably what's the most memorable thing is the turning around and facing them. Mm. And yeah. yeah, I think it's. I mean, I didn't see you until you were well established. I think you know. So, but it strikes me that you probably had a, your own style from fairly early on. I think I, so. Yeah. Um, there is. Uh, I I think it's a combination of wanting to tell the world stuff, but at the same time. I'm not sure the world is interested. So that's the style. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's kind of, <laughs> and it's not self-deprecating. I have confidence that what what my style is, or what, even then, would would be would 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 be worthwhile. But I didn't know whether anyone wanted to hear it or not. And it's, that that's mm. probably what informs the the, the performance. But uh, yeah, I, I think um, I suppose I was 27 as well too. Getting towards adulthood, I firmly believe you don't reach any kind of adulthood until your 30s anyway. And even then. You might only be rehearsing for your forties because twenties. You know, when you, it's so funny. You ever see a photo of yourself when you're eighteen mm. and compare it to how adult you felt mm. when you were eighteen? It's in, like like a Debs when you see yourself at your Debs, or indeed see anyone at a Debs now. Now, I, I, I mean, like photos of them. I don't. <laughs> I don't go <laughs> hang around outside Debs's. Uh, but you're so young, and uh, the, you can see in that face that kind of. Um, there's the the fragility of somebody who's trying desperately to be adult, but only has three bits of beard hair, <laughs> like, you know, not three areas, three actual bristles. Um, yeah. So uh, so I think about the age of 27, I felt I had a bit of confidence about um, that I had some sort of life lived, even though even then that's way too early to have any thing to say about anything you know but i think as you go on i mean i'm 51 now and i probably i think when i was 41 god i look back on that now and go god <laughs> i was so naive yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it probably keeps happening yeah as you get um, on i hope so yeah. <laughs> and uh you but you're not just doing comedy now you're doing you do a lot of work for you do radio radio for bbc radio for uh, uh, bbc, world, yeah. service. BBC uh, world service i do a yes. column for mm. them i've done stuff yeah. for uh, Radio 4 uh, a lot of it I do a lot of kind of humorous stuff mm. with a businessy slant which mm. technically could be a way of saying not as funny <laughs> as other stuff but actually it's quite it's, it's hard to do for you so business programs that need a bit of a humorous column I would often write stuff for that and mm. at the moment I'm doing stuff for BBC World which is a TV channel that I think it's the TV channel that if you are somewhere abroad, it's the one you might end up watching in your hotel. Oh, yeah. Um, certainly in the Middle East or somewhere or uh, in America, it's, you know, it's kind of a familiar one. So I do little business inserts for them on a particular topic, mm. but with a kind of a um, humorous style or at least lighthearted. Uh, the great thing about being a comedian in in a journalistic milieu is that you don't have to do any journalism <laughs> or research. You just have to try and make them laugh or at least come at it from a different angle. You know, yeah, it is yeah. opinion. And as long yeah. as you're not too, I'd be careful, like not to be wrong, 
but at least you know are le- are bombastic or a, are a knob. But just yeah. just some sort of a different angle coming at a topic yeah. as fun as not particularly glorious as out of office replies or uh, you know. Um, office uh, office politics or office jargon that kind of thing so mm. I'll do a lot of that for the BBC and um, I write uh, call him for the examiner which I really like doing because that often is my first a lot of the time ideas that may form, form their way into stand up might start as form of, uh, as part of a column where it still has to be funny but necess- not necessarily the, the rules around how you I often think that stand up is maybe an evolution of a column that you've written in your head, if you know what I mean, because mm. it has to be honed a little bit. Um, audiences don't have necessarily the patience for exposition oh, no. or background that a, somebody reading will have. Mm. So an exa- the, a column I write for the Irish Examiner has to stand alone as being a good column, but it can often, one of the central ideas might become stand-up at a later stage. Uh, mm. So I like that. And it's every week as well. It's just, it's a, uh, it's a kick in the arse. And you have do to you, do it. Do, uh, is your day spent like fairly reg- writing wise? Do you sit down and write? And yeah, I mean, like the, between between one thing and another, um, it's not. I don't spend enough time writing stand up. Uh, yeah. What I write for is um, is uh, my my club, the the in jokes every every month in the Patriot Inn. In the Patriot Inn in, in Kilmainham. Uh, I get into a panic the morning going mm. because it's the same audience every month. I yeah. need to have something new to say to them. Yeah. So stuff that had been floating around in my head gets distilled very quickly into mm. a number of bits of comedy that I kind of try out on them. And they know I'm sort of trying new stuff um, because they're not laughing. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but they did give me a little bit of leeway. And uh, also The Moth, mm. um, which is a storytelling hour. I MC that. Oh, and, really? Uh, yeah. Uh, it's a, one of my favorite gigs. Brilliant stories from people because, you know, when uh, the best way to describe it is, you know, when you overhear a snatch of a conversation between two ordinary people in an ordinary location uh, with nothing, no fanfare, no, no introduction. And it sounds that one little snippet sounds like a really yeah. interesting thing. Well, imagine if you heard the whole story. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, then the moth is a bit like that because the con- the, the stories, they're true. And uh, by true, I mean actually true, not comedian true, mm-hmm. you know, because comedians are like, so it says to the guard, no, you didn't say it to the guard. That's what you thought you should have said to the guard after the guard gave you the speeding ticket and then you went, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's, but. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's yeah. so many comedians that are single on stage, but they're quite ha- in a happy relationship <laughs> yeah, off stage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, but these are true, true stories. So yeah. I MC that and sometimes I'll tell a story at it just by way of emceeing it or sometimes I'll just by way of introducing the topic, you know, throw out a couple of ideas in a way that's so. So for stand up purposes, often it's written in a kind of a panicked way mm-hmm. on the day of the thing that I know the audience is similar to the audience last month. So I have to tell them something new. Um, but then when it comes to columns for the BBC or the Irish Examiner or um, another one is the Farmer's Journal, I write a a fictional diary of an Irish mammy for the Farmer's mm-hmm. Journal, which I'm having real fun doing because it's 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 Irish mammies is the reason I got the column. But the mm-hmm. what I'm trying to write is people, real people or makey uppy real people, if mm-hmm. you know what I mean, what they might say and not obvious things. So I'm assembling this kind of cast of characters that I'd love to turn into a novel or something. Um, so between the three of those and gigs and uh, um, and dossing, 
Uh, my day is pretty full. full yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you've got a baby on the way. Baby on the way yeah. uh, any minute now. Well, any day now it's kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The son's off now, so. Hmm? You could be a father now for all we know. I know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Apparently that's how they pop out. Like, they just, uh, it's a matter of minutes. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so that'll that'll be um, everybody. Everybody delights in telling me how much my life is going to change. And I, 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 I'm sure they're right. Uh, they are right. Yeah, so I will... Uh, I'll embrace it. Um, the baby, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's great. Yeah. My eldest is 17 now and it's just unbelievable how it goes by pretty quickly. So Was one of your kids photographing you at the electric picnic? Oh, my it? daughter. Yes, Duana. Yeah, she's into photography. So I did. I was I was doing my uh, podcast and interviewing Terry Alderton and then she'd take the photograph afterwards. So Lovely. Yeah. It's great. That's great. Uh, my son has done music for the podcast. Very and good. now he's been asked to do music for a Swedish sports podcast well it's 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 the age old as it's a story as old as life itself doing music for your father's podcast and ending up in a swedish sports podcast it's manny's the young man it's such a cliche yeah has left (laughs) has left our shores if only there was podcasting work for them here i know so uh, listen what are you up to coming up before we wrap this up or have you got any um, uh, well there's the moth in the maybe and I haven't heard any the Irish moth stories so they, they are on the podcast uh, some of the uh, Irish some of them are today. mine is on it somewhere oh, uh, okay. original I one that, I did uh, last yeah. September yeah. Um, the, uh, In Jokes is on Wednesday and then mm. uh, I have a few little bits and pieces a few uh, private gigs but everything is very much on uh, you know if I if something like after this week there won't be much happening for a few weeks I'll take some time yeah, off yeah. and uh, and uh, then back with a whimper <laughs> a tired whimper in a few weeks time I'd say ah you'd be grand you know and at least you can you can help out at home you you know ah yeah I know where the where the stuff is <laughs> yeah it'll be brilliant no it is brilliant actually being a, a parent yeah it's gradually becoming apparent to me <laughs> Well, listen, Colin, thanks a million for coming in. My pleasure. Yeah, so there you go. That was Colin O'Regan. And I loved reminiscing about farming. That was a a first for the Potter Rooney, I think. Um, Yeah, so uh, listen, if you like the podcast, would you please uh, just give me a star rating and a review? review and that kind of thing and i've had some great feedback from people on twitter if you want to talk to me on twitter i'm at joe rooney one the number one not the word one and i've had some nice feedback from the el arpa english academy in madrid so uh, yeah thanks for getting back to me on on those things um yeah and you can also find me on my website which is www.joerooneycomedian.com and I have a Facebook fan page as well. Yeah, so um, coming up, I'm going to be doing a couple of gigs on the 25th. I'm in Knoll. On the 26th, I'm in City Limits, Cork. On the Monday the 28th, I'm doing the Comedy Improv at the International Bar in Dublin. And 29th, I'm in the Empire in Belfast. 1st, 2nd and 3rd of October, I'm in the International Bar doing stand-up. On the 6th of October, I'm in the Black Sheep in Brussels, in Belgium. And on the 19th of October, I will be doing improv in the International Bar with a special guest, Phil Jupitus. On a Monday night in the International Bar in Dublin, 
The following weekend, in, on October the 25th, I'll be in The Loft in Galway doing improv with the Comedy Improv All-Stars and including Phil Jupitus. And on the 24th, the day before, I will actually be doing stand-up with with um, Patrick McDonnell, who was Owen McLove and Father Ted, in the Ruby Rooms in the King's Head. That's all during the uh, Galway Comedy Carnival, the Vodafone Galway Comedy Carnival. So that's it from me. Uh, next week, I will be talking to Cathy Davey. And I visited her uh, out at a farm that she, uh, well, but she lives out there with her partner, Neil Hannan. And they have a charity called My Lovely Horse, funny enough. And uh, I'll be talking to her about that and her music. So I'd like to thank Daniel Rooney for the music, Andrew Mangan for producing, and Castaway Media for hosting the podcast. And thank you for listening. And please give me some feedback. And I'll talk to you next week. See ya. Bye. seeing something. It's smiling at me. But not a friendly smile. The worst smile I've ever seen in my life. Do you see it right now? Smile. Rated R. Only in theaters September 30th.